Good morning. Uh, my name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together, whether you're here in person or you might be watching or worshiping from home. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. If, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the Bibles in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you. And there you can turn to page 961. 961 of those church Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible at home or you don't have one of your own, feel free to take that as yours. We'd love for you to have a Bible and for you to study who this God is that we worship uh, together and that you hear on a Sunday morning about. We've been in our Apostles' Creed sermon series, and why we've been doing it is because in the midst of a very fractured world, right, in a very fractured world where if you don't agree with me, or if you disagree with that person, we can no longer dialogue. We have all these different viewpoints, and it could be socially, politically, and I'm talking about the church, not just those outside of the church, but I'm talking about people in the church where we are no longer able to communicate because we're living in such a fractured culture right now. And I think what's beautiful about the Apostles' Creed is that First, it gives us clarity on what it is that we believe. We're going to keep the main thing the main thing. So even this morning as we witnessed the sacrament of baptism of a child, I know about maybe a third or even probably more uh, do not hold to this. But we're not going to exclude you from the fellowship of the church. Because why? We want to be able to say that as followers of Jesus, we are keeping the main thing the main thing. We're, we're bringing clarity to what has been a confession of faith for centuries, if not thousands of years. But second, I think it brings unity, right? We've talked about this. Right now on a Sunday morning, either yesterday or today, as you think about the world, of different languages, of different denominations, we gather together and there are people who are confessing this Apostles' Creed together because this is what brings unity and clarity to the church. But lastly, I think why we're doing this is because it's a story. It's not just a doctrinal thing here of, of God the Father, of Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit and the outworkings of the Spirit. No, as we will confess this together and as we've been confessing this faith together, it's a beautiful story that shapes us. It shapes us in our identity, and it shapes us in our mission, and it's very formational as we confess this together as the church upon millennia upon millennia. It's a beautiful story that remembers and retells for us what it is that we believe. And so today, what we're looking at is this. He descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. Now, as we've been reminding you each week we're not preaching the Apostles' Creed. It's not found in the scriptures, but we're seeing where is that derived from. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1, and uh, I'll read this for us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks, for we do not worship a dead God, but a living one who has conquered death and has all authority under heaven and earth. I know we can wrestle with this, and many times we do not live in light of the resurrection, but this morning, in this hour, as we have sung praises, we have heard scripture, we've lifted up prayers as we've witnessed the sacrament of baptism, and as we come to your word, illumine our hearts and our minds so we may be people who live life in victory. No more fear of death, no more fear, but we can live and rejoice because you have conquered death. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you had to choose one event in your life that has changed the trajectory of your life for the better, what would that be? Now, I know it's unfair because I'm giving you just a few seconds to think about the one event in your life that has forever changed your life. What would it be? Well, I had the whole week to think about that. And what I came up with was this. It was me moving from L.A., to Chicago. Now some of you are like, oh, that's a bad answer. Why not when you married your wife or when you had your kids? Well, here's why. Because if, if I did not move to Chicago from LA, I would have never met my wife in junior high and in high school and attended the same youth group and went to college together at Illinois and got married and had kids, right? So moving to Chicago was probably the most significant event for me and another reason is because I've learned 
to long suffer as a Cubs fan. <laughs> I'm giving you guys something here, right? Usually I'm the one who wants to be pushing back, but I've learned long suffering as a Cubs fan and as a Bears fan and as an Illini fan. It has been one of long suffering because I moved to Chicago. But actually, one of the biggest reasons and most important reasons is my spiritual life was really shaped and formed when I moved to Chicago with the mentors that I met and the pastors that really shepherded me and some of the friends that are still near and dear to me even today that I met in junior high and we still continue to walk our faith together. Now, I don't know what your answer might be, but why I ask that question is because as we think about events in world history, without a doubt, for me personally, and what many people will argue is that the one single event in world history that changed our lives forever was the resurrection. And there's things that we don't even think about that impact our society and our culture and our world. And as we think about this morning, the importance of the resurrection, I want us to look at what the resurrection reveals for you and for me. Even as as Jason reminded us this morning that with the call to worship, as God called us to worship, to respond in worship, Jesus came to the disciples, right? In his resurrected body. And because he conquered death, what happened? Sabbath was no longer a Saturday. But the first day of the week became Sunday, Easter morning. And we see that recorded in the New Testament. But here what I, what I want us to see in this brief time that we have together is that the resurrection reveals that Jesus died. Secondly, that the re resurrection reveals eyewitness testimony. And lastly, the resurrection reveals a eucatastrophe. And we'll get into all these things. But first, what the resurrection and why it's so important is because it reveals that Jesus died. Now, I know that seems obvious to us, but have you ever actually sat down and really considered that God died? That was one of my ordination exams 13 years ago when I took it. The question was, did God die on the cross? I did not like the question. It was very troublesome for me because I did not know how to answer that. Because I think in answering that, the committee came back to me and wanted to talk about my answer. And their point was that many times, myself and probably a lot of us here included, is that we like to skirt around that question. Did God die? Well, I mean, God is eternal and infinite and he cannot die. He's omnipotent. But yeah, God died in his humanity and all of this. And we want to qualify that. And that's what I did with my answer. I qualified. I kept qualifying because I did not like that question and or even to consider the idea that God would die. But here what we see is that God dies. Look at verse 3. In this verse, Paul makes it very clear. For I delivered to you as one of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And here in the Apostles' Creed, there's this interesting phrase that many people always ask about is that he descended into hell. Now what does that mean? Now, in the original Apostles' Creed, it was not in there. It actually got added. The first time they saw it was in 390 A.D. in the church that this phrase was added, he descended into hell. What does that mean? 
Maybe you've never thought about it, but here there's three different viewpoints of what that actually means. First is that Jesus took on the full brunt of God's wrath on the cross. That him descending to hell meant that he didn't just physically die, but that he spiritually died and suffered. Now, if that's true, why would Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here there's a better, there's another view, not a better view, but another view that is not just this this sense of spiritual death, but rather Jesus actually went to hell after dying on the cross. He doesn't just suffer hell on the cross figuratively, but he actually goes down to hell and spends three days there. This view says that Jesus receives the full punishment and judgment in our place as the one who is judged on our behalf. But the problem with this is why would then Jesus look at the criminal on the cross and say, today you will be with me in paradise? Why does Jesus cry out, it is finished when he hangs on the cross? And why does he say as he takes his last breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? So this is where I think the third view makes the most sense for us. In the Greek, there are two different words for hell. The first one is what we're probably most accustomed to, which is Gehenna. And what Gehenna was, was what we think about. The eternal place of punishment and death. Where you are no longer in the presence of the Lord, where none of your desires are satisfied and you will receive eternal damnation. But there's another word for hell that is sometimes used, and it's Hades. And what Hades meant was the graveside, the grave. And here, when they added this, the Greek word was Hades, meaning Jesus descended into the grave. In our our current culture, we would say, you know, six feet buried underground. And this is what was meant for the people when they said that when he descended into hell, he descended into the grave where he was buried for three days. And that's probably the most likely here. But here's what I don't want us to miss is that Jesus died. God's son, God himself dies. He doesn't swoon. He doesn't faint He wasn't merely resuscitated. He experienced a real death as a real human in every way possible. His death was a real death. He was buried. He descended into the grave. And Paul makes that clear that for the resurrection to happen, Jesus really did die. God dies. The other thing we have to see here that Paul makes clear in the resurrection is that the resurrection reveals eyewitness testimony. From verses 5 through 8, we're given all these people that have witnessed Jesus after his death with his resurrected body. And Paul makes this clear and he says, and most of that 500 are still alive today, meaning you can go talk to those people when this was written. So who does does Jesus reveal himself to? Cephas, who's Peter and the 12. More than 500 at one time. James, then to all the apostles, and even to Paul. And why is this so important? Why does Paul include this? And why do some of the other writers always include this? Because eyewitness testimony is so important for the reliability of facts. 
We use it and operate in that all the time. Let me give you an example. Pastor John, our associate pastor, he told me this story of when in seminary he had this bonfire going and one of his friends in seminary decided to smoke some wings. And these wings were phenomenal and I still use the recipe for myself. So when he invited all these people, one of the professors who will not be named came and he is someone who was absolutely loved in the seminary community. And as they all gathered and hung out that night, that professor, when he was about to leave, John tells me that this professor took two or three wings by the hand, didn't wrap it up, and literally just stuck it into his pant pocket. <laughs> I'm like, John, you're lying. I don't believe you. He's like, there were people there. There were eyewitnesses. You can go talk to them. And so that's what I did. One of his friends who lives in a different city was in town. I'm like, yo, did this really happen? Did this beloved professor take wings and put it literally into his pocket? And the guy said, yes. But here's, here's the kicker. I don't believe them. <laughs> I don't believe them. Why? Because it's not about the plausibility of all the eyewitnesses. It's shut case. It happened. But I don't believe it. Why? Because of the nature of what I believe about this professor. <laughs> he would never do that. But yet there were all these eyewitnesses that saw it happen. My point in that is these eyewitness testimonies, there are so many critical scholars, secular historians, that will say when they look at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, Acts, the Gospels, shut case. What they saw happened. What they saw to believe or what they believed to see happened. That when you look at all the world's miracles, and I'm, summary, I'm summarizing some of these books that I've read. When you look at all the miracles in the world that has happened, this is the most reliable. There's no, there's no doubt about that. 80% of historians, secular and Christian, can't dismiss it. But why do so many people yet not believe? And why do we struggle to believe this sometimes? It's not a matter of plausibility. It's a matter of what we believe about nature, about God, and about ourselves. That's the point. And when we come to the resurrection, do we believe that it happened when we look at all of these eyewitness accounts? Historians, secular, say you can't disprove it. What they saw is what they saw. It comes down to whether you, what you believe about God and nature. The resurrection reveals eyewitness testimony, and it is solid. But here's the last thing I want us to look at, is that the resurrection reveals a eucatastrophe. Now, what does this mean, eucatastrophe? J.R. Tolkien termed this phrase, coined this phrase, and what he said is that it is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, meaning, you know what a catastrophe is, right? It's an event this large-scale calamity or horror of an event. Well, he says you, meaning good, a good catastrophe. It's a sudden, unexpected, and wonderful turn for good in an absolutely dire circumstance. And what we see here is Paul actually goes with that in some sense and says what the resurrection is, is this eucatastrophe. And he plays this little thought experiment. In verses 12 and on, he goes, he basically asks, what would the world be like if Jesus did not rise from the dead? If Jesus did not resurrect from the grave, what would the world be like? 
And that's his thought experiment. He's willing to go there, which maybe some of us are scared to do. But the first thing he says, and what it reveals, is that he says, we are wasting our time. We are wasting our time. Verse 14, my preaching and your faith is in vain. Meaning, you coming to church, the prayers that you lift up, the songs that we sing, my preaching, communion at the table, all of it is for naught. It's a waste of time. It's in vain if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But he goes on and says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are still guilty of our sins. We still carry our sin now. In verse 17, you are still in your sins if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It means we are still, we would still be responsible for answering to a holy and just God for all the ways that we have broken his laws and offended him. And we still wrestle with that today for even those here who are followers of Jesus. We wrestle with the condemnation and the guilt and the shame that we have and carry to this day. Things that have been done to you. Things that you have done to others. Things that you have done to yourself. And we live with the burden and weight of the shame and guilt and the condemnation when if Christ did not rise from the dead, that would be true. But he also lastly says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are the most pitiful people in the world. The most pitiful people in the world. Verse 19, we of all people are to be the most pitied. Why? Because we have put all our eggs into one basket and they are all cracked and broken. We have slid all our chips into the middle of the table and gone all in and we have lost. We are the most pitied if Jesus did not rise from the grave. In essence, what Paul is saying in this thought experiment is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are without any hope at all. That is the reality. But that's where Paul stops his thought experiment and begins with the good news. In verse 20 he says, But in fact... I got an amen at the first service. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning Jesus is the first of many to rise from the dead. This is the eucatastrophe. Something so good has happened that changes the course of history. Jesus not only brings all to life because of him, but he reigns until all his enemies are under his feet. Because why he has put death to death, he has reigned victorious, and that is ours. But the problem is we fail to believe it. Jason shared about his shoulder this morning. Well, when our oldest, Stephen over there, when he broke his clavicle as a four-year-old, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. So what they do is they put you in a sling, and you just got to wait like three months or something for it to heal. And so we waited, and finally at the last doctor's visit, when they gave him the green light and thumbs up and said, okay, you can take off that sling, it's completely healed, guess what he did? Do you think he was like, woohoo? Now he, he, he kept acting like he had a sling and his clavicle was broken. And I think we do that in light of the victory that is ours, that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet we still act like we have broken clavicles. Do we believe that we are living a life that is not wasted, but the fullest because of the meaning and purpose that God has given to us? Do we believe that we are no longer guilty of our sins and no longer condemned, but we are free, 
We are forgiven. We are loved. And nothing that we have done or ever will do can ever separate us from the love of God. Do we believe that we are no longer the most pitiful, but we are the most graced because of what Jesus had done? He rose victorious from the grave, and that is ours. And we can claim that every single day. In the midst of Monday through Saturday, we, we're, we experience so much death in our lives, in relationships, in your families in your workplaces, in your college campuses, in your schools, wherever you experience death, do we live in light of the true reality that Jesus has risen? I don't think we do. I don't. And yet what Paul calls us to and what Jesus calls us to is to live in light of this beautiful truth that there is victory in Christ. This is the power of the resurrection. Tim Keller gives a beautiful illustration of that power when he gives this illustration of this oak tree. And the story goes like this. Tim Keller is a pastor, or was a pastor in New York. He says there was a traveler who was in Italy. And there he saw a grave of a man who had died a hundred years ago, centuries ago. But he was an unbeliever, and he was completely against Christianity. But he was also a little afraid of the resurrection and of Christianity too. So he ordered before his death that a huge stone slab would be covering his graveside so that if the resurrection were true, he would not rise. (laughs) That's how afraid he was of the possibility that the resurrection was true. And he had his insignias put all over this slab that said, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. But here's what's funny. Before he died, an acorn must have gone into his graveside so that a hundred years later, this this little acorn grew into this huge oak tree that split that stone slab into half and now towers over that graveside. And this traveler in Italy looked at it and said this, or asked this, If an acorn has power to split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of Jesus' resurrection power do in a person's life? What a great question for us to wrestle with this morning. What can the acorn of Jesus' resurrection power do in your life and in mine? That's the power of Jesus' resurrection. His lifeless body coming back to life, defeating death that can split the immovable slabs in your life, your bitterness, your insecurities, your self-doubts, your fears, your fear of death. Those things that can be split and rolled off, the more you get to know him, the more you begin to experience the power of his resurrection. And that is the truth. I think that's what's so different between heaven and the resurrection. Heaven is just a consolation. It's a consolation for our suffering. It's a consolation and compensation for the life that we might have lost. But the resurrection is not. Tim Keller says it is restoration. We get it all back. The love, loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. This is ours. Believe it, but not just believe it. Live it out in your life so that no matter what we face, we might be able to know that there is no one, no one that can do us harm because Christ has overcome death 
And so by overcoming death, we are victorious over death as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your victory over death. You have put death to death. And no longer do we have to carry on this thought experiment that if you had died, no, you have forgiven us. We are redeemed and you are restoring all things back as it should have been. Lord, help us to believe it and live it out from this day on and for the rest of this week. Even as we come to the table, Lord, give us the grace that we need to be strengthened so that we no longer live as if our clavicles are broken, but that we are healed and that we might be a blessing to many of those around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.